Hello, and welcome to The Sacred and Superstitious, where I'll be taking a weekly look at rituals, folklore, and supernatural creatures from around the world. I'm your host, Daphne Fama. Thanks for joining me today. I've spent the past two and a half years living in Korea, and next month I'm returning to the U.S. I thought I'd mark the occasion with a special on Korea. Korea and so many of its people have been exceedingly kind to me, and all have fond memories of this place. But one of the topics I find most interesting about Korea is shamanism. Korean shamanism shares many similarities with Filipino shamanism, which I might broach in a future episode. But unlike Filipino shamanism, Korean shamanism is still very much alive today. Korean shamanism consists of the worship of gods, ancestors, and nature spirits. And while it's considered an animistic ethnic religion, it's been influenced by Taoism, Buddhism, and Confucianism. Animism is the belief that objects, place, and creatures all possess a distinct spiritual essence. All things, to a certain degree, are alive. It's a beautiful concept. The origin of Korean shamanism is uncertain because of how diverse shamanism has historically been. Different provinces have different practices, but there was a serious attempt made at the end of the Chosun dynasty near 1897 to unify the different systems of shamanism. The wife of the last king of the dynasty, Queen Min, was a devout believer in shamanism, and was well respected in her palace. This unification was her project, but when the queen was murdered by the Japanese in 1895, the effort was discontinued. What's interesting to know is how recent this effort to unify shamanism was, and how adjacent to contemporary society. I'll be describing a myriad of legends which describe the origination point of shamanism in Korea. One story is such. A man known as Bupu Wasang was walking and saw a mountain torrent without rain. He searched for the source of the flood and saw at the top of the mountain a tall, strong woman who called herself the Holy Mother of the Heavenly King. The Holy Mother became human and married Bupu Wasang after divining that she should through the waters of the torrent. They had eight daughters together who were taught various techniques of shamanism and were taught to praise the Amitabha Buddha. These girls then went on to spread shamanism through the country. Another potential origin of shamanism is a legend of a princess in China who lived during the Qilin dynasty. The princess, Awang Kongchu, was known to have spiritual power, and through her prayers to heaven, she could spare her people from disasters of fire and flood. She sought to assist her people in any way that she could. People began to almost worship her, and her followers dedicated altars to her. Her followers later became shamans who then spread her teachings to Korea. But this isn't the only story involving shamans and princesses. Actually, there's quite a few. There's another story which originates in the area that is now Seoul, South Korea, where a princess was cast out of her kingdom by her father. Her father was angry that he'd only had daughters, not sons, and the princess, who was the seventh born, was cast out the moment she was born. Her father put her in a stone box and cast that box out into a pond. Heaven sent a dragon king to rescue her from the pond to take her to heaven. When the princess turned 14, she returned to Earth when she learned that her mother was critically ill. She brought her mother medicine water and saved her from death. There's yet another origin story of a princess. But in this case, the princess was considered insane. After a particularly volatile outburst, her father sent her to live in the mountains south of Seoul. There, the princess dreamed of a blue crane who entered her body. In the dream, the princess kept her mouth tightly shut so the crane could not escape her and, later, gave birth to two twin boys. These twin boys became wise ministers under the king's reign, and later had four daughters each. 
These eight daughters would become shamans who were sent in different directions to assist people through healing and believing in spirits. Thus, the princess who was once outcast turned into the ancestor of all shamans. There are many, many other stories, but most of these stories share the implication that the ancestors of shamans aren't self-ordained priests, but rather mediums or intermediaries to the spirits. Personally, I think these legends say a lot. Frequently, the person who is considered to be the ancestor of shamans is a woman who's in a position of power, a woman who's either born divine or a royal woman born with certain supernatural abilities. These women are frequently kind and compassionate and only seek to help those around them. And in some ways, they seem like bodhisattvas, enlightened beings in Buddhism who choose not to ascend in order to help those in need. Similarly, though, they are frequently women who live outside of their communities, who were not understood initially and then were made outcast. Or perhaps they can only wander, providing their services wherever they go, like the eight traveling daughters. But since the birth of these ancient legends centuries ago, shamanism continues to have a place in modern Korean society. Korean shamanism is defined primarily by mudang, or female shamans. Mu in the word mudang etymologically means the one who performs miracles. Dong means altar. The shamaness herself, then, might possibly be considered the altar for her practices. There are also male shamans called pansu, though they are also known as mudang. However, mudong is now a name that might have some negative connotations. For this reason, shamans may prefer the term manshin, which translates to 10,000 spirits, or even halmonim, which means grandmother. There's a popular shaman on YouTube who prefers omonim, the formal word for mother. But no matter what they're called, they all perform complex ceremonies, usually defined by offerings, dancing, singing, and elaborate costumes. But these rituals are defined by their specific purpose. For example, a ritual might be guiding the dead, healing the sick, honoring spirits such as the dragon, banishing misfortune, increasing prosperity, or even the initiation of a new shaman. These rituals are called kut and might last one hour or over 24 hours. The shaman invokes a spirit power, which then manifests in the radical change and behavior of the shaman. During this altered state of consciousness, the shaman has her personality displaced by the evoked spirit who possesses her. The spirit possessing the shaman is capable of transmitting their power in response to a ceremonial request by a patient or client, and in this way the shaman is a channel for the spirit. But an exchange of money is a significant element of the ritual, though the money is considered to be an offering to the spirit in the shaman, not the shaman herself. It's not uncommon for high-ranking business officials or entrepreneurs to seek out a ritual, though they might not tell their peers. It's something that they might seek out in private or in secret. In one instance, two entrepreneurs in the import-export business sought out the services of a shaman. They specifically sought a ceremony to improve their faltering business and divine the underlying cause for their lack of success. This ritual was recorded by a researcher who attended the ceremony in the shaman's home. The shaman performing the ritual had an altar room called a god hall. This hall was filled with apprentices or spirit sons and daughters of the shaman, friends of the clients, and the researcher. The god hall had an altar dedicated to the shaman's personal spirits on the north side of the room, which the shaman said it was necessary for the descent of her guardian spirits. The altar contained ritual instruments, costumes, and bolts of material for more than 20 types of rituals, flowers and vases, candles, and large incense containers. Many of these incense containers contained ashes from various shaman temples in Korea. 
The altar also contained a baby doll dressed in Buddhist monks' robes, which were meant to represent the lost spirits of babies who died young. These spirits can carry resentment for their untimely deaths and may subsequently attack living humans, leading to illnesses. A shaman can transform the resentment into a healing force if she's able to placate the spirits. The altar also contained four statues of Buddhist figures, including the Buddha himself, two bodhisattvas of healing, and one of Avalokitesavara, or Guanyin. But the shaman indicated that the Buddha and bodhisattvas were inferior to the shaman's own pantheon, as her pantheon of deities are far older. I think that might say something historically about the origin point of shamanism. The Buddhist statues were mostly for the sake of her clients, who are primarily Buddhist. An important part of the altar, however, is called Mushindo. Mushindo are pictures of shamanic deities and spirits which stand behind the shaman's altars. But these aren't mere images of the divine. It's believed that these paintings of deities, spirits, and important figures actually contain the spirits that they represent. Therefore, each image is a sacred object. Every mudang has a pantheon of personal deities who work through her. And occasionally, these images are passed down from an elder shaman to her chosen disciple. But more often, they're burned after the shaman's death, thus returning the shamanic deities to the spirit world. Frequently, the mushindo are painted by the shaman herself, but they may also be painted by professionals and can even be ordered online. If you get the chance, I really recommend looking at some of these paintings. One, they're beautiful and there's so much symbolism to each of them. But two, I just really enjoy the images of the tigers, and I really recommend that you look at them. In this case, the performing shaman's mushindo included national figures such as generals, noblemen, and scholars, as well as folk deities, such as the spirit of the seven stars of the Big Dipper, and people who are important in her life, such as the shaman who initiated her. The god hall also contained an arrangement of platters full of offerings, such as rice cakes, pastries mixed with oil and honeys, and various fruits and sweets. But amongst these more commonplace offerings were also a cooked pig's head, wands with paper cuttings, and iron knives with colorful ribbons on their handles. The arrangement and type of offerings provided indicate the type of ritual the shaman performs. In this case, for the two entrepreneurs, the shaman was performing a seven-step ritual, which would take eight hours to perform. But a ritual can have as many as 28 steps. It's the shaman who determines what's offered, how they're arranged, and communicates to her personal spirits as well as the client's ancestral spirits in order to perform each ceremony. She has complete authority over the event. The ritual for the two entrepreneurs begin with a shaman's spirit daughters or apprentices playing instruments. Several spirit daughters begin to chant or respond in chorus as a shaman begins her invocations. Another apprentice begins to dance. The dance is meant to purify the house by expelling evil spirits and invoke the guardian spirits of the shaman and the ancestral spirits of the client. Food is then laid out for the spirits. The shaman then takes two iron blades and beats them in rhythm while chanting, Let us worship both the clean and unclean. Let the clean one in and the unclean one out. The unclean one is outside and inside the deceased one's home. The unclean one of fire is in heaven. The unclean one of water is in earth. The unclean one of the dead and the living is in the flying birds and crawling insects. Let the unclean one pass slowly through the rear and front door. The gift of the unclean spirits is revealed. Unclean spirits are thus invited to take part of the offerings. The shaman urges the unclean spirits to abandon all evil plans, machinations, and plots against her clients. But as she's chanting, the shaman's facial expressions begin to change, becoming tranquil and smiling like that of a bodhisattva, 
to indicate that she's possessed. They then serve a feast for all the invited spirits and all the living participants. The shaman then engages the businessmen in discussions about why their business is failing. The entrepreneurs are impressed when the shaman tells them that it's a blind uncle who is responsible for their misfortune. Presumably, they know someone who fits that description. The ritual continues, and this time the shaman invokes the spirits of the mountains in heaven. The mountain spirits are particularly important because they guard the entrance and exit to the realm of the dead, and thus ancestral spirits. The shaman dances with a variety of weapons, fans, wands, and bells. She lists the names and ranks of the spirits who are possessing her, who are associated with each of the items she's dancing with. The spirits using the shaman's body speak to the clients. Sometimes they scold the clients, and sometimes they praise them. Finally, using her guardian spirit, the shaman was able to broker a settlement between the blind uncle, who was annoyed and resentful because of his blindness in life and his family's neglect of his spirit in the afterlife. Because of this neglect and resentment, he chose to trouble the two entrepreneurs, who are revealed to be both his nephews. The nephews promise to give the uncle more ritual attention in return for his promise of non-interference. What distinguishes these rituals from a mere folk dance at a festival is that these clients are participants, not mere spectators. They engage in the ritual and with the spirits at various points, usually to offer the spirits money if the spirits seem unhappy, such as stuffing one to the ears and mouth of a pig when a divination proves unfavorable. I've described a lot, but in reality, there's actually far more to this ritual than what I've described. At every stage, the shaman changes outfits, practices various forms of divination, and has her students perform in some capacity. In some cases, her students are even possessed. In one case, a possessed student stabs the pig's head with a knife. Clans are also prompted to dance if they feel spirit-touched, and frequently there are stops for meals and conversation. It's an exhausting all-day affair where every moment is full of symbolism and vigor. Now, whether or not the ritual saves nephew's business, they leave feeling as if they have a solution to their problem. It's hard to say they didn't get what they paid for when so much effort goes into performing this ritual. And you might be asking yourself, how much does this cost? It sounds a little expensive, right? But it's a little hard to find out exactly how much these rituals are. The price of a ritual is determined by the person asking and the amount of time and effort the ritual requires. There's no standard price menu. But a rich ancestor that you're invoking will cost more and a poor ancestor will cost less. And what I mean by that is if a rich ancestor left you a large inheritance, that ancestor will expect more. But if you had a poor ancestor who left you essentially nothing, then their expectations are going to be a little lower. I scoured trying to find an estimate of how much a shaman might charge for her services. The best I could find was an estimate of several million won for a small ritual. 1 million won is approximately 800 US dollars or 619 pounds or 741 euros. So several thousand dollars for a ritual that might only be a handful of steps. Remember that the shaman who performed for entrepreneurs could perform a ritual that was 28 steps long. I imagine that one is very expensive. But I was able to find an article about a man who claimed he'd been scammed by a shaman and actually admitted how much he'd been scammed for. In this case, the shaman charged him 120 million won, or nearly 100,000 US dollars, for a myriad of blessings and rituals. This is considered high even for multiple blessings. But when the ritual failed to work, the man claimed that the shaman was a scammer. Unfortunately for him, he was unable to get his money back. And you might be thinking to yourself, oh, so can anyone claim to be a shaman? 
Can anyone charge a sucker $100,000 to perform a ritual? Well, not anyone can become a shaman. Shamanism between the North and South remains distinct, and one of the things that defines shamanism from these different regions is the call. In the North, shamans are called to the profession spontaneously, and the rituals are considered more ecstatic. But in the South, shamans are often chosen through lineage inheritance, and the rituals thus are more structured. For those who are called spontaneously, it's not uncommon for them to be stricken by shaman sickness, or shinbyong, which translates to self-loss. Shaman sickness occurs when a god or spirit chooses an individual, not necessarily a woman, and possesses her. This possession is accompanied frequently by physical pain and psychosis. Some of the physical ailments can be fevers, chill, a loss of appetite, insomnia, hallucinations, and even comas. The shaman who performed the ritual for the two entrepreneurs contracted shaman sickness at 18 and fell comatose. When she awoke again, she found herself digging in the ground to recover the ritual implements buried in the grave of a deceased shaman. She would then go on to have at least 100 apprentices or spirit sons and daughters and is, by all metrics, quite successful at her profession. But when asked, the shaman stated that she felt her vocation as a shaman led to some disasters for her family, including the financial downfall of her formerly wealthy family, their early deaths, and the dissolution of her first marriage when her first husband discovered that she was a shaman. I have no idea how she thought she was going to hide the fact that she was a shaman. Anyway. Personally, I think some of the misfortunes that she and her family suffered through can be attributed to the fact that most of this happened during the Korean War, and that she barely escaped from North Korea during that war, and it was just a period full of strife and hardship for many. Sometimes shaman sickness occurs without warning, but it may be preceded by an external shock such as the death of a loved one, or by dreaming of a god, spirit, or some other unusual occurrence like a crane entering your body in the case of our princess origin story. Many believe that shaman sickness and its related symptoms can't be cured by conventional medicine. Rather, it can only be cured by accepting the spirit or god possessing the potential shaman. If the person afflicted with shaman sickness refuses to begin initiation, the symptoms can last anywhere between 8 to 30 years. But during that time, the possessed person will be physically and mentally weak, and may be afflicted with dreams where she communicates with gods and spirits. These dreams in reality might become blurred, which feeds into the afflicted person's hallucinations. Reputedly, these hallucinations can become so severe that it manifests as a mental illness, and the person will begin wandering the mountains and rice fields. Shaman sickness is something that occurs throughout the world in countries and cultures where there is a belief in spirits and animism, and while it doesn't always manifest in precisely the same way, it's interesting that there are certain threads that unite completely different cultures. If you're interested in shamanism or seeking out a mudang or manchin to perform a ritual for you, it's possible there's a shaman in the country that you're listening from. I know of at least one shaman in California who offers virtual services and consultations. She's very active on Twitter. There are other shamans in New York who hold workshops dedicated to learning about folk beliefs or learning how to connect to your ancestors. And while I've never received services from either of these people, if it's something that you're interested in, definitely go for it. And if you'd like to see images of altars, you can actually find plenty of pictures on Instagram by searching the hashtag mudong or manchin using hangul, the Korean alphabet. Just use Google Translate and type in shaman or 10,000 spirits. I will warn you, there's a chance you might see a pig head with money stuffed into its mouth and ears. But if videos are more your thing, 
There are YouTube videos where shaman are interviewed. These videos are in Korean, but there are closed captions in English. And that's it for the shaman special. As always, I had a great time, and I hope you did too. This has been The Sacred and Superstitious, and I'm your host, Daphne Fama. Thanks for joining me today. See you next week.